Well, this morning we are continuing our series out of 1 John, which we've been uh, doing for a few weeks now, and we've titled Going Deeper. And today's topic is deep love, out of 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. And I have to say, if there's any theme that ties together the whole letter of 1 John, and possibly, I would even suggest, that maybe ties together all of John's writings, it is love. And so we get our thesis for the passage, and really what I would call the heartbeat of this book, right here in 1 John 4, verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Now normally, I hate to give away the application this early in the sermon, but, you know, what can I do? That's, that's it. That's the application. Uh, and John also makes it clear, right off the bat, right from the beginning, that this is a non-negotiable. Uh, this isn't one of those things that you can just kind of shrug at and say, well, I mean, that might be your thing, that might be your gift, but it's not mine. In fact... John, by contrast, is is actually rather blunt. He says in verses 7 through 8 that there are really only two categories of people. There are those who know and love God and love one another, and there are those who neither know or love God nor love one another. You can look all you want. You can read the rest of the chapter, the rest of the book. There is no third bucket, no group that knows and loves God and yet refuses to love their brother and sister in Christ. John says that is neither an option nor even really a possibility. The call to love, he says, is a call to all believers. None are excused. Now, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so you had to know you were in for at least one football-related anecdote this morning, so here it is. Uh, When I was in high school and I was on our high school football team, Uh, We had a mantra. It was, run the ball, stop the run, and create turnovers. This was our coach's great mantra, his great strategy, and it was everywhere. Uh, If you don't know Ohio football, it's a big deal, all right? So just walking class to class in school, there are signs plastered up all over the hallway, run the ball, stop the run, create turnovers. It covered the wall in our locker room. We would shout it at our coach, a kind of call and response kind of thing at the beginning of every single practice. We would yell it at each other during practice, and then we would yell it together again to close practice uh, as though it were some sort of magical incantation. Now, I tell you that, it's important background, because... One lovely fall evening in Ohio, our team drove up to Orville to play a football team who had two Division I caliber tailbacks. And we knew that going into it. It was halfway through the season. We knew these these two guys were outstanding. And so we spent the entire week preparing for them, focused on containing them, stopping the run. Uh, We had a whole strategy, a whole defense planned around it. We focused on it, we practiced it, and we went up there Friday night and we were ready. And when we finally got to the game and we played the game, all of that focus, all of that discipline, all of that practice amounted to nothing. That's, yeah, nothing. Those two guys ran roughshod over our team for the entire game. We were down 28 to nothing by halftime, and we lost, to my recollection, 56 to 7. We all learned a very important lesson that day, possibly everyone except my head coach, which was that repeating a mantra is much different from actually executing it during the game. 
And the problem, it was clear to all of us, was not that the strategy was unclear. It was very clear. We all knew it. We could all repeat it. Uh, The problem wasn't that half the team didn't know what to do. We all knew exactly what we were supposed to do. It was just hard to do it. It was just hard to do it. That night, we didn't stop the run, we didn't run the ball, and we didn't create any turnovers. The problem, especially that day, was not knowing what we should do. It was being able to do it. The follow-through was much harder. What we learned is that sometimes, even when you know what you should do, you still need help to get it done. In that way, it reminds me of the command that we're discussing this morning. Look, the concept is simple, and like my high school football mantra, I expect that we all know that we should do it. The problem is that in real life, the follow-through turns out sometimes to be difficult. Look, sometimes it's easy to love one another. Some people are easy to love. But other times, it's very hard. Sometimes, even when we know what to do, even though we know what we should do, we need help if we're going to actually do it. And so what I want to do this morning is to take a deeper look at this passage, and I want to look specifically for the help that John offers us in following through on the command to love. So look with me, if you would, at 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, but whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us first. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. All right, before we go further and dive in, I think it's important to begin this morning by defining our terms. We need to clarify what we mean and more importantly, what John means by love. Look again at verses 9 and 10. 
he says, this is how God showed his love among us. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This clarification, I think, is crucial to the passage. If we skip over this, what we risk doing is supplying our own meaning in place of John's. And I think this is especially tempting when it comes to love. Uh, It's easy on our own to read that and to see and hear only what we want to see and hear rather than what God is calling us toward through John. And so what we should ask is, what kind of love is John calling us toward? Well, I think those two verses, 9 and 10, give us two important clarifications. First, John is calling us toward a love that is gracious and generous. What I'm trying to capture here is the simple beauty of John's reminder in verse 10, that this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us first. He loved us first. God, John reminds us of that, uh, that, that he loved us first before we loved him. And in fact, God loved us while we were still living in sin, enemies of God. And in that way, God's love is a gracious love, by which we mean it's a love we were not entitled to. It's a love we didn't earn. And it's not just gracious, it's generous. God, thank goodness, did not measure out his love for us in careful proportion to the amount of love that we had shown him. Instead, he poured out his love extravagantly on the cross before any of us loved him. Jesus laid down his life for us because of love, with no guarantee that we would even receive that gift, let alone reciprocate. Uh, Years ago, an economist named William Nordhaus did a study on the cost of light to human beings over time. I know it sounds boring, but I actually found it very compelling. Uh, If you think about it, the cost of light to humans is something that has changed enormously. If you go back far enough, and you were just an average person living in the world, and you wanted light when the sun was down, your only real option was to spend a great deal of time and a great deal of energy chopping down trees and cutting up wood to burn in a fire. And by the way, if you've never cut down a tree with an ax, it is a lot of work and takes a lot of time. And it must be said... The light that it produces is not great. It's smoky, it's dim, and it's inconsistent. And that came at the cost of a lot of time and labor. Well, if you fast forward a few hundred years, technology marches on and you get candles and whale oil lamps. Uh, This is a better quality of light. It's cleaner, it's more consistent. But both of those things, beeswax, whale oil, were, were scarce. And that meant that they were very costly. And that really, they were available on demand only to a very wealthy few. Well, fast forward again to our day, and what you have is a situation where light, light, is so cheap, it's so abundant, that most of us use it whenever we want with no thought to the amount we're using or to how much it might cost. We could call this state... uh, Super abundance. In fact, I was thinking about this. Most of us are coming out of a season when we do something that for most of human history would have been beyond conception. 
we hang decorative lights on the outside of our house. And we plug them in and we turn them on every night for hours at a time on the off chance that someone might happen to drive by and look up and go, oh, that looks nice. Light for us is not, we don't have an adequate supply. We don't have a sufficient supply. We don't even have an abundant supply. We have a super abundant supply. It is excessive. It is without meaningful limit. God's love for us is super abundant. It is excessive. It is more than sufficient. It is without meaningful limit. And John this morning is calling us toward that kind of love, a love that is gracious and generous. And second, John calls us to a love that we must admit is at times costly. Look, I enjoy celebrating those other two aspects of love as much as you do, but we can't ignore the fact that the love that John has in mind was exemplified by the cross, by the atoning sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And it's that aspect, I think, that really helps us hone in on what John is calling us toward this morning. This is more than just simple goodwill or affection towards other people, valuable as those things are in their own way. John is calling us through those to something deeper, a sacrificial love, a love that will endure cost, a love that will endure cost. Jesus, I think, captures this idea best in Luke chapter 6 when he asks rhetorically to his audience, what credit is it to you to love the lovable? Even sinners, he says, will do that. He then says, but I tell you, love your enemies and do good to them because then your reward will be great. Then, then you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. This is a hard saying. I just think we should admit that. And it's, frankly, even harder to obey. But it's so important, because it is this Jesus says, it's this John says, that truly sets us apart. It's that kind of love that marks us out as who we actually are children of our Father in heaven. We all have, I hope, people in our lives that are easy to love, and we should love them and love them well. But John is calling us to something further this morning, to a generous and sometimes costly love. And I would imagine that we all of us have at least one person in our life who is difficult to love. Maybe it's as simple as your personalities clash. It just makes it tough. Maybe there are old and even deep wounds that have been slow to heal. Or maybe there are, in the present, sharp disagreements about issues that are very important to both of you. Let's just be honest. Loving those people is going to be more difficult for us. It's going to require us 
to be gracious and generous with our love. And it might be more costly. But Jesus also says that the reward is greater and that when we do it, we reveal ourselves to be children of our Father. John and Jesus are calling us to that kind of love. All right, so by the time we get to verse 11, what we have learned, in my opinion, is that John is calling us to a deeper love, to a gracious, generous, and costly love for one another that is modeled on and inspired by God's love for us as revealed in Jesus. Now, to my, to my mind, that is a beautiful and compelling vision. But I think, to be fair, it only begs my original question all the more. Because most of us, I would hope, would sign on to that vision. We would say, yes, that sounds wonderful. I would imagine most people inside and outside the church would look at that and say, yes, I would like to live in that kind of community, that kind of world. The problem, though, is just like it was for my football team. It's, it's in the execution. It's hard to live that. And so what I want to ask one more time is, where does that leave us? Does John intend for this to, to be nothing more than, than a beautiful vision, you know, always just beyond the horizon calling us forward? Or does John think, does John believe that this is a reality we can actually participate in, something we could actually experience as the body of Christ? Well, I think John clearly intends the latter, and I believe that because he doesn't just cast this beautiful vision and then move on. He casts the vision, and then he, he proceeds to provide three sources of power and motivation for us as we strive to obey it. First, in verse 13, he reminds us that God's own spirit lives in us. So, okay, it's a beautiful vision. It's hard to do. How are we going to be able to do it? First, John says, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. For those who profess faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, currently, constantly, reordering and transforming our hearts so that they will align better with the heart and mind of Christ. Paul, writing in Galatians, tells us, the first fruit, the first product of the Spirit's work in your life is love. So if you've listened to the first part of this sermon and you thought, yeah, that, that sounds great. I, I just, I don't know if I have it in me. What John would say to you is, that, that's okay. Before Jesus, none of us had that in us. But God is literally at work in you right now, changing you so that you might see and love others as he does. So first, we have the power and aid of the Holy Spirit. Second, John tells us, we have the example of God's own superabundant love for us. Now here, you could look at what John writes in verses 9, 10, 12, 16, 19. It's all throughout this passage. We know God loves us, John tells us over and over, because we have seen and experienced his love for us. That's where this whole thing starts. The source and inspiration of our love for each other it begins with God and with his love for us. And here it's worth, it's worth pausing to remind ourselves, 
You know, we're so familiar with this, we live with it, that, that we forget the shocking nature of this, that at the center of Scripture, at the heart of Scripture, is the claim that the fullest and clearest revelation of God to us was his sacrificial death on our behalf on the cross. And John believes, much as God himself does, that there is no greater motivator toward righteousness, toward love for one another, than to behold and experience the boundless love of God for you. In Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to his house for dinner. Uh, And Jesus arrives and he enjoys dinner with Simon and a number of other guests that Simon has invited. But at one point during the dinner, a a woman enters Simon's house, just sobbing with joy. And she kneels at the feet of Jesus. And she begins to wash his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. And Simon and his other guests, looking on, are shocked because they recognize this woman and they know the life that she has led. And they think to themselves self-righteously that that Jesus, if he were really a prophet, he would know who this woman was and there's no way he would let her touch his feet. He would send her out of the house. But Jesus knew what they were thinking just as he knew who this woman was. And so he said to Simon, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon said, okay, Lord. He said, suppose there were two men who each owed a money lender money. One owed $500, one owed $50,000. But neither one, when it came time to repay, had the money to repay the loan. So the money lender forgave them both. Which Man, Simon, do you suppose loved the money lender more? Simon, thrown off by what he assumed was a pretty obvious question, said, well, I assume the one who had the larger debt. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. It is the one with the larger debt. He said, Simon, you invited me to your house tonight as a guest. And yet when I arrived... You showed me none of the kindness, none of the courtesy that a host normally extends to a guest. And yet, this woman, from the moment that she has arrived, has never ceased showing me kindness. And so from that, I can tell you, I can confirm for you, that her love demonstrates that her many sins, many though they might be, have been forgiven. The parable works because all of us, including Simon, intuitively understand that someone who is forgiven much should love much. Someone who receives an astonishing act of mercy should be changed by the very act of receiving it. In the same way, I think if you were to tell John this morning, listen, I... I hear your call to love one another. I I even want to obey it. But but there's this person in my life, they make it so difficult. They are just so obstinate. And I I just, I don't know what to do. I, I can't get past it. This is what I think John would say. He would say, well, what I recommend 
is to stop focusing on that person, stop focusing on what makes them so difficult. Because if that's where your focus is, you're always going to find an excuse to let yourself off the hook. Instead, what you ought to do is turn your focus to Jesus Christ and to his extravagant love for you. Because, because how can any of us, he would ask, who behold clearly God's love for us on the cross, how could any of us who behold that, who experience that, fail to be moved to love one another in return? John and Jesus, I think, would suggest that if we are not moved by God's love for us to love one another, then we have neither fully understood nor fully received God's love for us. There is no greater motivator, John would say, for loving one another than to behold and experience God's love for us. All right, so for help, we've got the Holy Spirit living in us. We've got the prior example of God's love for us. And third, we have what uh, scholar Gary Berga calls the reality of God pressing into our lives. I love that phrase. It's his way of describing what John is getting after in verses 15 through 17. And, And what he's really after there is nothing more than the fundamental Christian truth that through Jesus, our sins are not just forgiven, we are reconciled with God. That is, we are restored to a relationship with him. And what Gary is saying is that that relationship, the relational presence of God in our daily life should press in on us. And like every close relationship we have, it should change us. Listen, whether we like to admit it or not, the fact is that all of our close relationships change us. You know, whether that's a spouse, a coworker, friend, children, those relationships over time work a change in our life. And what John would say is, how much more should your relationship with God work a change in your life? And since love is at the core of God's essence, since God is love, we would expect that over time, in relationship with God, that that would move love toward the core of ourselves as well. What John calls us to in this passage, as followers of Jesus, is without question a simple and beautiful vision. Our lives and our corporate life together, he says, are to be characterized by our deep love for one another, even as God himself is characterized by his love. We are called, we are commanded to love one another with a gracious, generous, and sometimes even a costly love. When we do this, John says, this is your take-home idea, when we do this, we reveal God more clearly to the world around us, and God's own love is made complete in us. To close, I just want to look once more at, at verse 12 where John says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. No one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, and maybe it should, I can tell you why. It's because it bears a striking similarity to a verse 
in John's gospel. It's at the beginning or at the end of his famous introduction. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he writes this. He says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You see the similarity? What I think John is suggesting by taking that line he wrote before for his gospel and repurposing it here in his letter to the church, what I think he is suggesting is that we as the church are Christ's physical presence during his physical absence. That is, just as Jesus, in his time on earth, was revealing the invisible God to a watching world, now we, John says are to reveal God to a watching world through our love for one another. Second, and I want to end with this, when we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Every time I hear this verse, it always makes me think of electrical circuits. Uh, If you know how circuits work on a very basic level, uh, they need a closed loop for current to flow. And what it seems to me that John is saying here is that when we love one another, when we extend that love from ourselves to the people God has placed in our life, uh, we close the loop. We allow God's love to flow through us into the lives of other people. And that means it's not just a blessing for them, though surely it is. It also means, or at least it seems to me that John is suggesting, that we experience the love of God more powerfully and more tangibly when we extend that love to others. I want to close by asking you just to take a moment and to bow your head. And I want you to reflect on what I brought up earlier. Search your heart and ask yourself, is there somebody in your life right now that you find it difficult or costly to love. What I'd encourage you to do this morning, this isn't about guilt this morning, it's about help. I'd encourage you to go before God and to ask for help, because he's offered it. Ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart. Ask God to reveal to you in a fresh way the superabundance of his love for you so that that love might overflow to others. And then I'd encourage you, as you leave here, to take God at his word. Love that person. It may be difficult, it may be costly, but when you do it, I think you'll find that God's love is, in fact, made complete in you. Just take a moment. God, we thank you for the incredible love that you have shown to us, the limitless love that was made available to us through your death on the cross. God, I pray this morning that as we behold that love, as we experience it in our daily lives, I pray, God, that it might inspire us, that it might motivate us, that it might drive us to love one another more deeply. Lord, I pray, especially for those moments where we find it difficult, for whatever reason, I ask, Lord, especially in those moments that we might be inspired by your own love for us, 
I pray that in those moments, your spirit would be at work to produce the fruit of love in us. And I pray, God, that over time, as we walk with you, that your that being in relationship with you, that your presence would transform us and change us so that we might more and more come to love others as you do. In your name we pray, amen.